Welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast, uh, episode 298. Uh, I actually was working on uh, some, some cool guests for uh, episode 300 coming up here. Uh, uh, it's hard to believe that we've done 300 episodes just about. Um, this week, we have Mary Beth Sanchez joining us today as an IPM expert and among other uh, regenerative practices. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Steve. Oh, I have to apologize. I didn't realize your name was a PH, and I know I wrote it with a V, and I feel terrible. <laughs> oh, it's all my good. apologies for this. Oh, I like to oh, get yeah. it right. I'll remember <laughs> it in the future, though. <laughs> uh, we also have uh, Marty with us today. Thanks, thanks for coming, Marty. Yeah. <clears throat> How's everybody doing? Welcome. Hi, Marty. Nice to meet you, Mary Beth. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Um, we also wanted to uh, mention a couple of things real quick before we get started. Um, we have, oh, I have the thing here. We have the uh, the Supernatural Conference, the last week of July coming up. I'll be speaking at, on that uh, Friday. Uh, there's also a new day on Thursday with um, the Bug Lady. If you want to take the workshop, um, all different types of cool speakers, the 29th, 30th, and 31st uh, of July. So definitely check that out. Uh, get that out? That. Where's, where's in Oklahoma. Yeah, in OKC. Uh, and then also we have the new pest class uh, at thepestclass.com. Uh, if you're looking for aquaponic cannabis uh, and living soil, uh, just a general class on all the different things and biocontrols that are available to you. Uh, and then we also have the uh, aquaponic cannabis class um, that we, uh, Marty and I have been teaching for, for quite a few years. So uh, we have a quite a long range of classes. We'll actually be adding more classes here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have a mineral and micro class coming and then an aquaponic design and planning course. So I think you guys are going to like uh, that and then we'll have kind of an overall, you know, buy everything package or you know just the vegetable side of stuff uh, available to everybody. We're trying to get basically we had a bunch of requests for the advanced class, um, so we're kind of splitting that into some more specialized classes and adding some of the other cool content that we have uh, available to that. So um, you know, if you're looking for cool aquaponic uh, education, we have a whole bunch more coming on top of the stuff that we have available now. Um, but uh, think uh, yeah, so. Uh, uh, oh, and the one last thing, almost forgot. Sorry, cats. Um, <laughs> uh, we have the Myceliate, the festival uh, with cognitive function. Um, we have all kinds of cool speakers. We have Dustin Powers from Future 4200, Chris Trump, uh, Cass Posey, Matt Powers. Cass was on the show a couple of weeks ago, if you want to check her out. Uh, uh, wonderful lady. Um, uh, Molly from Molly's Bottle Shop. I know she has about 25 other speakers uh, that she's been announcing or working on. She's got a crazy list uh, behind the scenes. Uh, I've gotten to see some of it. So definitely check that out if you're in Washington. Uh, it's August 19th, 20th, and 21st. Uh, be out there hanging out. Hopefully, arm twist Marty into coming. So. Oh, that would be a cool one. Where, where is that one? 
It's uh, about an hour south of Seattle. Oh, nice. So a little bit closer. It's only like a 10-hour drive. <laughs> um, only 10 hours. Oh. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> like, oh, well, you know, it's right. It's it's pretty much in Oregon. And you're like, well, yeah, but it takes you six hours to drive across Oregon. So mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, yes, it, uh, that is relatively close, though. It's not like some of Steve's are like Michigan or somewhere like that. So it, it's within reason, at least. Yeah, it's, it's drivable in a day. <laughs> um, but that's going to be awesome a whole weekend of permaculture stuff. So that'll be, that'll be kick-ass. Um, yeah. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mary Beth. Um, do you want to kind of um, uh, introduce yourself to everybody here? I have like, your uh, Instagram. Like the seeds are like Michigan or somewhere like that. So uh oh, it, it's got a loop playing. There we go. Sorry about that. Accidentally <laughs> had the, uh, the chat open from the thing there and it reloaded and, and loaded the video. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah. I tell you, the Twilight Zone is going down today. We got, we got our, our episodes. <laughs> well, uh, uh, my name is Maribeth Sanchez, and I've just been involved in uh, horticulture, gardening, farming for basically my life. It's been, you know, multi-generational in my family, so it, it grew on me from an early age. And I was born up in a family doing traditional, uh, you know, post-World War II agriculture with the chemicals and the row crops and, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it just was a thing that later in life, when I was, you know, getting into my young teens, I started getting into health food and organic food. And uh, you start then learning that, you know, how to grow things more intelligently. Uh, and so I hadn't really attained adulthood yet. And I was interested already. So when I was, went into college and started studying horticulture. Uh, thankfully, at that time, the college curriculum was getting more into the compost, the composting, and the regenerative stuff, and away from the uh, chemicals and the stuff that they could see was obviously causing problems, and they had to figure out how to fix it. And, you know, they knew they were already running out of their mind sources of, you know, our nutrients and things, and that it would become to a point of war when people run out of, you know, their phosphates and that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, that we had to think of other ways to do things. So that was good at that time to be inspired to learn other things and go other directions. So that's when I started uh, studying a lot on my own, particularly delving deeper into the compost to compost tea. I started studying the teachings of the great Elaine Ingham, who you've probably heard of and Carol Rollins and uh, Mark Remillards and the people who are, uh, really big in the field of compost and compost tea and they you know lecture everywhere about it and these are the ones that I get my uh, main information from and this is what I've been practicing where I was working for the last 11 or 12 years in a um, local nursery as the you know nursery manager in there and uh, that I got a lot of experience not only with a variety of growing different kinds of plants but particularly in the area where I live, we're inundated with cannabis growers. So you get cannabis grower people all day long with their particular needs and concerns. And so it was, it was a really good immersion for me for the last, uh, you know, like I say, 11 or 12 years of just being involved with the cannabis growing side of horticulture and their specific requirements. And at some point in time, I heard about, uh, 
aquaculture. And I thought, you know, yeah, for cannabis, ideal. For any crop, ideal. But yeah, that's where I discovered you amongst my searches for things on aquaculture stuff. You know, you're the, first, you're the most important guy that came up for that thing. And um, I'm, I was really inspired. We almost did uh, an aquaculture setup in my own home garden here in our backyard because we have a fish pond. So we thought, well, the most obvious thing, you know, we'll circulate the water through and water some plants, and, you know, get it back in the pond, blah, blah. We were, you know, studying how to make the filters and how to do the setup. And we thought, okay, this is cool. And as we were setting it up, fish started dying and we were going, oh, shit, what's going on with my fish? Well, it had nothing to do whatsoever with the aquaponic setup. It was just happened to be a coincidence, unbeknownst to us at that time, because the way I had my pond set up there were like places where the fish could go and die and nobody would know that the fish was in there dying or dead and decomposing. And I had a fish in a place like just like that, that was dead and decomposing for a long time. And of course, you know, causing the water to go foul and everything kept dying. And I was able to save two of the fish by taking them out of the pond and taking them to my uh, pond at the nursery at work. And then when we emptied the pond completely entirely, then we could finally find the hidden dead fish, you know, and then by then we were disheartened and dismayed and in a big disarray. And so we didn't get a, our, our aquaponics set up again, but we've always keep thinking about this. <laughs> we really want to do it. It's a fantastic, obvious system. I mean, the, the fish water will always just take it out of the pond anyway, take it around the plants here and there and, you know, give them some fish water. Everybody knows they love the fish water. So, you know, that's about as close as I am to having aquaponic system right now. But at home, I do have a garden with just every kind of plant that I can grow in this area, including my lovely cannabis gardens. But, um, and they get some fish water, but nobody's really truly on an aquaponic system, you know, like professional style aquaponics. That's all right. You can still utilize all those wonderful aquatic microbes and your terrestrial stuff just fine. Yes, 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 this is indeed. Thank goodness. <laughs> we had a, a quick question from chat. Um, uh, they're having um, too many pill bugs uh, in their garden. Uh, anything they can do to kind of help keep them in check? Oh, you know, you might try diatomaceous earth for those because you would just need to put it on the ground where you know that they're at. It would probably work for them. Um, I've never really actually had them be a problem, but I know some people do and they'll start chewing up your plants. And uh, that would probably be the easiest, least toxic thing that you could do. Just try not to inhale it. You know what I mean? When you're, when you're distributing and putting it around your garden, just be careful not to inhale it. I've heard I remember that it doesn't work when it gets wet. You do have to reapply it when it gets wet or let it get bone dry again, and then it will be effective again. I've also had some luck too with keeping their numbers like kind of more balanced out and in check and in living soil beds with um, uh, rove beetles or mm -hmm. um, uh, if you have uh, any of those like hunter, uh, I forget what the name of the official name of it is, but in Oklahoma, you can find these green hunter beetles that move really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, those guys, if you get a couple of those, throw them in your garden. Uh, they'll, they'll pick those, those guys off pretty quickly, but rove beetles is something that you could purchase that, um, it's going to, you know, hang out in the soil where they are and, and eat them on a regular basis and not care that they have eight legs instead of six. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty good about reproducing really quickly. And so they'll get established quickly in your garden. 
Yeah, yeah I'm a big fan of road beetles too. And plus, they'll, they'll cover you for other, you know, insects right, also. Right. They're more of a hitbox predator. So, yeah, I, I'm a big fan. Um, so what uh, uh, you're into um, uh, composting and things. It's been a while since we've had a um, uh, anybody on that's really knowledgeable on compost. Um, what are some of the kind of the key things that you see people doing wrong with their own compost? And maybe what are some of the kind of the, the key things that you look for when you're, you're making your own compost? Well, a lot of times people, you know, have a weird definition of what compost is and they just kind of will, they'll have their mind on manures and kitchen waste and things and that's really this kind of stuff that's recommended to not put into your compost pile at all unless you uh, put them through the bakashi process first in which case that you know then that's good so um, bakashi is from god as far as improving the amount of things you can put into a compost pile and then have effectively break down into you know the humates that you're trying to create that organic matter and um, what I see happening is that, uh, people will make a pile maybe with, with the wrong nitrogen carbon ba- balance and it, it, they'll have a harder time getting that right because you know, you're really ideally shooting for like 30 to one, you know, 30 nitrogen to one, car, or, or excuse me, 30 carbon to one nitrogen. And it's, it's not easy to do, especially if you're going by charts where you know, they'll say things like leaves equal well, that depends on when the leaves were harvested. Were they harvested while they were green and fresh and full of life? Or was it after autumn when they fell naturally from a tree and all the nutrients have been used up? You know, they're not going to have the same carbon-nitrogen ratio then. Same with like your grasses and things. The time they were harvested will make a huge difference in like their protein content, their, their land, their carbon-nitrogen ratio, all that kind of stuff. So those charts can be misleading and throw people off. and. You know, it's you just you can't. It's one of those things like cooking. You get used to you. You figure out what recipe works for you in your area, and you know, as far it's kind of like KNF in so far as that you're 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 uh, culturing biology. You're trying to create more biology faster than it would be doing all by itself in nature if you just didn't do anything. So it's, it's just a different way, a different method of doing kind of a similar thing, but it's, it's a really, if it's done correctly and and you get your temperature correct, then for the, you know, right length of time, you'll know by the time you're done that you're, you're, you have good stuff because it'll just look like topsoil. It won't look like any recognizable plant parts that you originally put in there. You know, but if you're going to do things like kitchen waste, or our manures and stuff. You really want to involve a lot of bokashi in the process. And it's recommended that you put those uh, products through the bokashi before you even add them to your compost pile. You know, it, it's supposed to sit into the bokashi for maybe two to three weeks and it comes out kind of mummified looking. And in that mummified state, you take it and then you bury it into your soil or into your compost pile until another two maybe weeks go by. When you when you go to unbury it, when you can't find it, when there's nothing in there that resembles what you put into the soil originally, then you know it, it's really done. It's really finished when it just looks like the rest of the nice, beautiful earth. 
and it takes a while. It's a process. It's, it needs patience. And what I see a lot of people doing is not using nearly enough Bokashi because it takes a lot more than you wish. <laughs> so you either got to learn to like buying it or, or make your own. And I recently uh, started making some of my own because I knew I was going to need a lot. I'm starting a new compost pile. It's the beginning of the season. You know, I'm getting more stuff done. So let's just, I got like 150 pounds of Bokashi right now, but I'll probably end up making some more. You never know. It isn't that it, it doesn't take a lot of ingredients. It isn't difficult, but it takes up some space and it gases off. So it makes a smell. You don't necessarily want it in the room where you're going to have visitors. You know what I mean? You're going to want a warm, warm, a place that always stays warm to to keep it while it's doing its uh, fermenting. And so that's not necessarily easy to achieve. It'll happen in a cooler space, but it'll, it will take a lot longer. So ideally you want a really warm space. And when I first put my bags in, when I, <laughs> it was funny, at first I didn't put any pinholes or anything in them. I, I put it in plastic bags because you want to squeeze out the air because this is an anaerobic process, right? And uh, I thought, okay, I'll put weights on and then it'll be good. It'll sit there. Well, what was happening when I left the room was everything was the gases would start building up and building up. And then all these plastic bags turned into these big round balls and they were rolling over off the shelves. I kept having to go in and put, put them up. And then finally I thought, look, I'm just gonna put tiny pinholes. This, this won't be too much oxygen to get in there and that'll let the gas escape. And so I just put in a couple of tiny pinholes and that solved the uh, <laughs> roly poly Bokashi balls. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's my Bokashi story. <laughs> um, a lot of people, uh, how do you make your Bokashi? I think a lot of people uh, haven't had a chance to, you know, it's, uh, not a lot of everybody knows what Bokashi is um, and, uh, and, and are aware that it's pretty easy to make. Oh, yeah. It's just basically, well, three or four ingredients if you count the water. Uh, molasses, it takes EM1 and it takes either, you know, some kind of brand, either wheat brand, rice brand, you know, some kind of high, high carbon source like that. And you mix, you know, it's mostly the brand. Uh, the molasses, like say for the 50, for 50 pounds of brand, I think you add like two cups of molasses and maybe two cups of the EM1. You, what you do with the molasses is first you melt it in. Oh, and then you've got, oh God, I think it was four gallons of water, maybe five five or six gallons of water, but you don't necessarily pour all that water in. Okay, so you do, you add the water slowly till you get the right texture. You don't necessarily add all the water in, but you take a little of the water, like maybe a gallon of the water out first, heat it up, they say to boiling. And that, I think that's part of the temperature regulation. If you heat that up to boiling and then add it back to the other water, you'll have a nice warmer water and it's better for your microbes. But you melt your, uh, molasses into the boiling water first because otherwise you know how molasses is trying to dissolve molasses is horrible in cold water so yeah. you do all of the molasses in the hot water first and then you pour that back into the rest of the water which will then be you know this sort of comfortably warm temperature to start adding it to your bran until you get to it you know a nice real moist uh mixture of uh, you know you don't want it too goopy wet you don't want it too gloppy you you but you do want it really you know maybe a little more than 50 percent moisture but not a lot more than 50 percent moisture 
I think I might have got mine a little overly wet this time. I got a little enthusiastic and you can't take it back. So that's why, uh, you know, if you don't have extra brand there to thin it out, you need to just add your water slowly. <laughs> okay. Be patient. Mix and pour, mix and pour, mix and pour. And uh, yeah, and then you put it into bags or containers, something where you can make it airtight. The bag is easy because you can easily squeeze out all the air, you know, or take your bag and then put that into a box or whatever you got to do to, to store it or stack it or put it somewhere where it can be warm like over 70 degrees and over 75 ideally you know if you can get it up into 80s that's really really cool but um, not everybody has a space that's really warm like that but do what do the best you can and you know check on it every week or so white mold is okay dark colored mold is not quite so great um but what's happening at the end of about three weeks, maybe more, but uh, hopefully within about three weeks, it should be done fermenting by then. And then you can either use it to put into your compost pile to accelerate the compost uh, composting process or to you know your kitchen waste to uh, accelerate composting with them or to make it so that they're suitable to put into your compost pile. Um, yeah, it really helps with to compost and digest things that a regular compost pile can't do. You know, and in fact, it can digest a lot more toxic stuff like sulfur, uh, plastics. Uh, it's a really hardcore. They used to call it a fungus. It looks like fuzzy white mold that grows in it. It's what you'll see a lot of, but it's uh, actually a like an actinomycet. They're a bacteria that looks like a fungus, and they've been reclassified over the years. So recently. They decided now they're a bacteria. So, okay, but you know, we're going to call it a fungus because it looks like a fungus when you look at it. It's fuzzy white moldy stuff. That's what we call fungus. So, that's why you know, you'll hear people call it fungus and you'll, and you'll hear people call it bacteria. It's in a transitional stage, <laughs> it's a trans organism going around. <laughs> Don't lock it in a box. But anyway, it is a, a really neat biology that is one of those things called the uh, the facultative anaerobes, like the lactobacillus, where it, it really can function nicely in both anaerobic and anaerobic conditions and do really good things for our plants and for our gut health as well. I have a picture. Uh, I was trying to find it. I have a good picture of exactly what you're talking about if i can find it oh yeah give me a second here um what uh you mentioned lactobacillus so they're using labs quite a bit on your farm oh, well uh, you know that i don't make it uh really the k and f way i kind of what i do is i uh ferment uh wheat berries so it's a thing they call rejuvalac, but basically it's the same thing. You're getting the lactobacillus off of the wheat berries. And, uh, you know, it's a vegan way of doing it because I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to have any milk or eggs or those kind of things to, that's usually see in the KNF stuff. Um, but it's, it's the same bacteria, whether it's coming from the cheese or it's coming from the wheat or from whatever. There you go. That's what uh, that's what you're talking about, right? Oh yeah, fun, fuzzy, fuzzy whites. Yep. Good stuff. If you such have such a beneficial uh, biology. 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say, uh, especially if you have root rot or any, you know, septoria or fusarium issues or anything like that, or had issues like that last year, you put something like that down, it's going to just annihilate anything like that that's going to be negative towards the plant. Yeah, and basically that's what the EM1 is, is the lactobacillus and that and a few other um, important, I think there's maybe 12 uh, that they claim different uh, bacteria that are in there that are part of the essential microbe uh, blend that they have. But uh, lactobacillus is the primary one. And it's uh, what you can also create your own EM1 back by reconstituting the Pashi by uh, you sort of ferment and extract the juice from that. That's my, I'm too stoned to tell you that off the top of my head, but basically you would like kind of make a tea of the Bokashi and, you know, and the, the juice that comes out of it is your EM1 and it, it ferments for a while. You know, I direct message me in the Instagram and I'll send you that recipe. And yeah, I don't have to rely on my brain. Uh, to, to remember it correctly right now, but MBS IPM and Instagram, if you want to get the recipe to get the I, uh, EM1 out of your Bokashi reconstitute, because that's it, you know, the part that costs a lot when you're, when you're out in the store saying, I need some Bokashi. Oh my God, the EM1 can be uh, an expensive port there. But uh, it's also good to, for a couple things, EM1 will also help if you're making compost tea, it will in, lengthen the life, extend the life of your compost tea, your stuff in there. And, you know, it's just a way, it's a really good additive for any time, just before you're going to put out your compost or your compost tea, add some EM1 to it, it's even better. Do you do um, uh, any IMO2 collections or do you preserve any IMO2 or are you just all just doing the IMO1 to, to your Well, compost? you know, see, I, I would get lost if I could tell, you know, I don't know the KNF. Uh, uh, oh, so when you stabilize the IMO, when but you stabilize know, the IMO1 with, with sugar. Okay. I see. Yeah, I, I get lost there because I don't really practice it. I studied it a little, but it's like, oh man, my, my compost is so simple. And I already know that method. I'm just going to stick with that. But one of these days, I'm really going to study the KNF, but I don't have it down yet. But I know um, I'm, I'm cultivating a lot of microbes. And I do know that when I like to make my compost tea, I do like to go around under the trees that I have growing because a lot of old trees around and just dig up a little soil there and add that to my compost tea. So I know I'm getting extra indigenous microbes just, you know, spread around for whatever and hoping I'm not getting any bad guys, but it's always fun to see what I get when I look under the microscope at the tea sometimes. Once I actually saw a star amoeba, which I've never seen before or since, but it was awesome because I know that came from underneath one of the pine trees that I had growing at the nursery where I worked before. Uh, it, it is a really neat thing to see. You just rarely see any of the amoebas, but the star amoeba is really beautiful because it's just like it sounds. It's got these rays that go out the sides and it moves real slowly, but it's moving and it's like, wow, that was a gift to see. <laughs> Even once in my life, it was cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I never even heard of a, a creature like that. 
Yeah, it's very trippy. A microscope's a great thing. You get lost in that world. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Um, we had a, another question in chat. Um, would visible signs of predatory mites crawling on pots be anything to be concerned about? If so, what are ways to help control their populations? Well, predator mites, I'd say hallelujah. <laughs> Usually that's what you want to see. They're, they're on duty, guards on duty. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Spread them around. <laughs> Share yeah. the love. Send me Take some. Out, take some outside if you don't want so many indoors but they're they're not going to start eating your plants at most they'll start eating each other until they're gone they're not going to start eating the yeah they also might be trifagus mites i think a lot of times when i go to places and people think they the have a bunch of mites. h miles they actually have trifagus mites they have wonderful yeah. fungal colonies because they're doing right. things the right way with living soil but they're actually you right. know totally overrun with trifagus mites I see it all the time. They go into a panic attack because they don't know what it is. But yeah, it's yep. those little soil mites. And There's they'll a crawl million, up million mites. Yeah, and they're very friendly. <laughs> <laughs> they'll crawl they're up into the canopy up. and people will freak out. And... Yeah, yeah. But you know, the bad mites, the mites that we hate, they're generally almost invisible to the naked eye. They're so tiny. So usually there's a clue right away if you can see them. And they're running around that they're the good guys. They're not the bad guys. You can also too, when you, when you find mites in your garden and this doesn't, it's not a hundred percent, but this is like a general rule of thumb. If they're cruising around real fast and have two feeler arms out and they're yeah. actively moving around, they're hunting, yeah. right? They're a yeah. meat eater and nine yeah. times out of 10. So if you see yeah. them, they're cruising around they're hyperactive with two feeler mm -hmm. arms in the front, that's a you know pretty universal sign for many of the different predator species uh, of mites. So mm -hmm. I like the little dance that the two spot does, but it's a slow dance. I, have you ever watched them? They kind of wiggle back and forth. It's like a two step, the two spot, two step, go back and forth and side, side kind of. And then go forward, you know, like one step forward, two step backward. That's it. Okay, all of a sudden I've got a reggae flashback. <laughs> but uh, it's cute to watch them. But generally, yeah, like you say, they'll they'll find a vein and they'll latch on because they want to eat. And they just sit there and suck away your plant's juices. Yeah, here we got a... A picture of them doing that I took here. We'll throw that up on the screen. The you dancing mites. <laughs> oh, I don't have the dancing part, but I do have them sucking on a vein there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think those, it's when these they're guys... molting or something that they get really kind of dark red like that. I'm not sure. I think it's when they're molting or well, there's, something there's where they're getting excited. There's a ton of phenotypic variation as well. I mean, I've seen, okay. I'm sure you have seen as well, a whole slew of different color variations of these guys. Mm. And then also too, if, you, if something's got a lot of anthocyanin in it, they'll, they'll turn nice and purple or green. So will the caterpillars, uh, helicopters will do that too. That could be too. So aren't they just adorable? Not but, when they're in your garden. <laughs> oh, those distinctive well, two spots, though, gives it away. Yep. And the eggs right there as well. Oh, yeah. A lot of ding-dang eggs. And if you're wondering how big a russet mine is, it's about the length of this front leg of the 
spider mite. Mm-hmm. That's why they're so damn hard to find. Oh yeah. Um, we had another question. Uh, um, what do you like to do for leaf aphids? Uh, you're, uh, it says, I'm getting a flush of outdoor aphids right now. Someone in chat. Oh, well, I'm a fan of Dr. Symes. I think it works really well for stuff like that. But um, not everybody can get it in the area that they live, uh, in which case you might try, you know, some of the other typical uh, things that are recommended for aphids, the, you know, oil sprays and things. But if you can get Dr. Science, I like it because it, it comes out really clean on the plant. It doesn't clog the stomata. It doesn't have any oils. It doesn't have any toxins. And it's safe for aquaponics, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I yeah, use we... it around my ponds and it never toxins, it never poisons a fish. It's pretty nice. No, quite. I know quite a few different, uh, uh, it's actually pretty popular too. And, uh, um, uh, lettuce producers. Oh, there you go. Oh yeah. Yeah. You just, it has to make contact with the aphid though. So if it's in a thing like, you know, a brassica or a cabbage or whatever, and you can't get down between those leaves, you're still going to see them in there. It doesn't kill with poison. So it has to make contact. This is this is the product I've had the best luck with with leaf aphids on cannabis in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a product called Velifer, which is a very 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 aggressive strain of a very bassiana. Mm-hmm. That's different than a lot of the other ones that are on the market. Um, it's no different than oh, other yeah. bassiana, but it's this different PPRI five three three nine strain. And this stuff is great. Um, it'll even uh, it'll even go after. Um, uh, leaf hoppers. Uh, it's the only Bavaria Bassiana oh, strain yeah. that has high efficacy against leaf hoppers, which are hard to control in any other type of scenario. So um, that's been one of our other go-tos aside from IPMO uh, uh, for if that. I had a, if I had a really bad infestation, I would definitely go with that. Thankfully, so far, knocking on wood while I talk, um, it, you know, any, any that I've had haven't been a big infestation. But um, yeah, I've often thought about the Bavaria for things, you know, but I would, it, for me, it's a little more broad spectrum than I want, but there's situations that are so severe sometimes that, you know, whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. And, you know, it's not like it's going to persist in the environment for all time, or you know, it's, it's not going to be a toxic waste issue and things like that. Sometimes, you know, you have to make your little sacrifices and trade-offs. So I'm not against it at all, especially like I say, if you have a chronic issue with that and you've just got to get it under control. Yeah, absolutely. Right now I'm having a little issue with certain uh, trees in my yard because uh, our erratic weather that we have here. So uh, there were some fungal issues that are starting in the soil around some of the trees where I can see I need more uh, mycostop or more trichoderma or things that are more extreme that I wouldn't normally necessarily use, but I think I need some more in my environment because obviously certain areas are showing uh, that uh, some weakness. So I have, uh, you know, gotten some on order. Some's a thumb. It's not like everything looks terrible, but I don't want to wait and let it get terrible. But there's a couple things where I could say, oh yeah, there's definitely something going on here and I have to treat it. But the biologicals are really my favorite, either with the, you know, the different bacteria or fungi or the beneficial insects, et cetera. That's what I'm most interested in. 
Yeah. I, uh, the other one I would recommend if you're, if you're still not, if they're not responding to the rare Balsiana, you can, we've, mm-hmm. I've also had luck with infecting them with uh, Isaria fumus uh, which I guess just got renamed um, Cordyceps fumus uh, which would be like PFR 97 or Ancora. Um, Cordyceps but, are great. They're, that yeah. would be a specific fungus and it wouldn't affect anything else more than like, because usually they're super specific to just a certain type of insect. That yeah. might be the most ideal one, even better than the Bavaria. Yeah, and it, uh, Isteria works a little bit better against certain stuff. Uh, white flies, mm-hmm. it tends to infect a little bit faster as well compared to Bavaria Bassiana. They'll both work, but... Uh, you know. uh, um, the other thing that we've been doing too lately, especially with stuff that's, you know, mainly with leaf hoppers, because sometimes we're getting those pretty heavy is mixing different strains of Bavaria Bassiana to kind of, you know, and, and hope, uh, hopefully um, hybridize the strains a little bit and kind of create something that might be a little mm. bit more virulent at application. Um, and oh, yeah. uh, I was kind of curious your thoughts on that. Oh, I like that plan because leafhoppers are a problem. I can't spray them with anything because they jump too well. <laughs> you know, they're gone the second you start to spray. You can't get anything on them. Then, yeah, it's a problem getting it at them. And I, 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 I haven't seen them so much in recent years, but last year I noticed more than I'd seen the year before and I'm wondering what's going to happen this year and I oh god yeah I'm, I'm, I've got to be prepared forewarned the creatures are out there well you know especially around here I'm out in the woods right and we've had a lot of forest fires so where do all the bugs go when their territories burn? So they're all concentrating on the few places that are left that are unburned so our bug populations have gotten you know that extra boost of uh, concentration. So this kind of is uh, we have to be more vigilant. Okay, oh, hey, that's those cute little critters I'm seeing on the screen there. Yeah, this is a Phytosaurus prosimilis, and then this is a spider mite. So yeah. you can kind of see how he's moving around, hunting with those two legs, feeling around, really cruising around. This guy is kind of not moving around anywhere near as fast, but you can kind of see behavior-wise. Yeah. The, the plant mite versus the predator mite. They're very different behavior-wise. Yeah, they're little soldiers, man. They're going to get you. They're not wasting time. <laughs> Especially that one. Yeah, he's looking. He's hungry. Uh, yeah, we were just talking about that earlier. I wanted to, to throw that up since I knew. I knew I had a video. I just had to find it. I I have my pictures and photos and videos badly indexed. I got to sit down one day. <laughs> Oh, God, I know what you mean, please. Yeah, somebody ought to do this. I'm not holding my breath waiting, but something. <laughs> what about thrips? What is your go-to for thrips? Uh, same thing. You know, I like to do preventative doctor's eye stuff, and usually that works pretty good. Uh, there's been occasions where I've seen beetles uh, become a little bit of a problem. The cucumber beetles are starting to appear annually, so then I'll go for something with spinosad but i try to be really kind of sparing with that because i'm not it's it's a one that is another biological but it, i don't want to overuse it it just has a lot of precautions going along with it but it, it does have a good uh, efficacy with the beetles 
and it also uh, coincidentally helps with thrips with and uh, they I'm usually finding them in the same place. Yeah, the uh, that was the other one that Asari is really good against is thrips. Yeah, I, I was thinking the uh, Bassiana would probably do good, and uh, also the uh, larvae of the green lacewing. They are a wonderful predator, but they're hard to keep around. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, they're fun too. Uh, watching them just tear through a bunch of my uh, aphids yeah. is very entertaining. Yeah. It's like watching like an <laughs> alien attack, just destroying everything. It's it's very very fun to watch. It does. It looks like a science fiction drama scene. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so what, uh, um, have you run into root aphids at all or anything like that? Uh, that's definitely one that we, we get a once lot of questions. Once in my life, once in my life. I thank God, knock on wood, well, I say that too, because uh, it, is, it is a persistent and difficult one, especially because it's very tough, thick-skinned. So especially like for the Dr. Symes, which I like to use, well, it it is a lot harder because of the toughness of their skin, you know, and, and this is a product that dissolves their body. So that makes it that much harder to dissolve. So in that case, I'll usually tell people, we'll add Dr. Bronner's soap to it. Add like a teaspoon per gallon to the Dr. Symes and water. And that will usually help and you drench the soil. If they get, if that is still not working, I would maybe go as far as like say, uh, nematodes would probably be my next choice i would like to flood the soil with nematodes uh they're god they're so destructive they're so quick i've only ever had them once on some hydrangeas that i had at the nursery and thankfully they were only in like three hydrangea pots but uh, i drenched them and drenched them i took the whole pot and dunked them into dr signs and water and i just dunked and drenched and till they were all dead but that the plants were so damaged they didn't really survive either but i you know i never like i said never seen them before thankfully never seen them since yet but i know they're really tough and people when they they struggle with them they are hard to kill you can try sulfur but sulfur is so persistent in the soil and if you don't want it to be there forever at a toxic level because you know it kills everything basically now, if you're trying to have a living soil, it's not going to be very living if you've had to do intense sulfur stuff. The thing about the doctor's sign that I like is even if it kills off your biology really a lot for about a day or so, it really, the beneficial biology resurges very, very quickly. It's not a really a persistent product. And uh, under the microscope, I discovered this doing compost tea experiments that were very surprising to me. But the... Uh, uh, well, I don't want to say bad biology because that, you know, that's put it on a label, man. But uh, let's face the ones that indicate lack of oxygen, you know what I'm talking about, the anaerobic bacteria, they did not resurge. Whereas the aerobic uh, bacteria and fungi did resurge, like within just a couple days of being basically annihilated with a bottle of Zymes being poured into the compost tea. You know, 50 gallons of compost tea I poured in maybe half a gallon of Dr. Symes. I had to I had to kill everything in it. It had gone anaerobic. It was as I had to make the bacteria die, try to get the uh, release of the nutrients 
so that I could get the nutrients and just at least if they were released from the dead uh, microbes, they would be in the water and I could put it out into my, uh, you know, fertilizer injector as I normally always did with my composty. And at least it would get out on the plants and they would have the nutrients, right? Even if the biology was all dead in there. So that is what I did when I looked at that under the microscope. Yeah, everything was dead. You know, it usually took me like three days to get through this 50 gallon barrel of compost tea, which at that time was full because I just made it the day before and then lost the electricity. So it went bad. And before I was done with it on the third day, I said, just out of curiosity, I want to look at it again to see what the, what what's going on in there. And I was shocked at the resurgence of bacteria. And it had only been two days. They went from like nothing to a holy shit is better than it was the first day when I looked at it. I was, my mind was blown. And there were none of the anaerobic indicators floating around in there at all. I was like, wow, this really, I did not expect it all. That just, that blew my mind. I said, okay, well, this indicates to me that that, you know, similar, it made sense in that, you know, when you're making compost, the bad bacteria and pathogenic and the seeds and all, they're killed off between the temperature of 135, something like that, and 160, say. But above 160, you start to kill off the good stuff. But below that, you don't, they're still fine. So I'm thinking the good stuff is just naturally stronger. You, it is easier to kill off the bad guys. They are weaker. They're just bad. You know what I'm saying? Stand up to the bullies. They're weak. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's kind of the analogy that I'm giving because it made sense to me then. Like light bulbs started going off. I was going, hey, okay, I get it. This is this is trippy. <coughs> Excuse my language. But yeah, well, uh, that was an interesting thing that blew me away as far as like, well, soil drenches and people in living soil are very concerned. You know, we love our little microbes like we love our fishes <laughs> and our, et cetera, our bumblebees. I raise bees. God, I love every single bee. And, you know, they, they have extremely short lifespans. <laughs> you know, we're going to keep them very long. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But. So I, I, I was thrilled that uh, all the good guys don't die. Yay. <laughs> What's your uh, go-to compost tea recipe? Mm, the simpler, the better. I kind of, like I said, I follow the Elaine uh, Ingham method with just uh, as little as possible. So uh, basically you want your you good water, of course, obviously, <coughs> excuse me, without pouring blah, blah, blah. You want it to be like ambient temperature to the uh, environment that it's going to be out uh, put out in. You know, so if you're making it for outdoor plants, you're you're going to have your tea brewing outdoors in that same environment. And I like to add to that. Uh, you know, the quantity is going to depend on your volume, but I like to add to that some really good quality humic acid from uh, non-leonardite source, like uh, you know, seawater or lake bed humic acids. And um, I like to add some soluble seaweed powder. And I like to add my compost itself in a mesh bag uh, with either uh, the compost that I've made myself, plus some worm castings, um, plus, you know, like I said, go dig up a shovel here and there from under this or that tree and just randomly pick them. And just to, who knows what I'll put in. Sometimes I'll go ahead and like, I'll throw in a handful of straw or something because I know you can get a lot of protozoa and things off of straw. 
um, wheat straw particularly has good protozoa on it. Like that's you know how you make that rejuvelactin with the labs, with the, the vegan labs is um, basically fermenting uh, wheat berries in water for a couple of days and get drinking the water off it. Tastes like bean water. You know, it's it's a nice ferment. It's not a rotty, stinky, vile thing. It's, it's pleasant. You get used to it. Start to want more. <laughs> good biology in your guts keeps you healthy. But it's also good, like you know, it's the same labs that you put in your fish water or in your plants and stuff. So sometimes I'll go and pour some on my plants just to know that they're getting a little more biology in there or whatever. I'll have more than enough for myself. But anyway, I'm rambling again. Sorry. No, you're fine. <laughs> But that's the compost tea bears. We basically, I keep it really simple. I don't add molasses unless I really think I want to. And, and usually if I do that or, or, or something like the um, fish hydrolysate, those kind of things, that would be at the very last minute before I was going to put it out because those things tend to get so bubbly and anaerobic so quickly. And especially where I live, it's so hot. And it's usually during the summer that I'm doing this. And so, you know, you don't want things to go anaerobic or so that's added just before, basically just before putting it out, which is, I've been told, fine. That's the way to do it. That's awesome. Yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't tried that. I'll have to, I'll have to try that type of labs. Um, yeah. I've definitely made plenty of other versions. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's easy to drink. And it's basically what you, they use to culture and make vegan cheeses and things. It's, but it's the same kind of stomach culture. It's just, you know, those poor vegans, they have to get it from somewhere. So <laughs> they go ahead and get it from the wheat. But uh, yeah, then they go ahead and they can make fermented, you know, nuts and that kind of thing. It, it, so yeah, you can make them delicious. You can get used to that shit. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> One of them weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what cultivars are you growing this year? Oh uh, well, let's see. Which one am I going to try to grow this year? I have my kids are all now about like maybe I'm eyeballing them now. They're maybe four, five, six, seven, eight inches tall. They're starting to grow fast. I'm about to put them into their big girl pots and hope that they stay girls. But the the ones that I'm trying to get, I think, let's see if I can remember. I know I've got a nine pound hammer. I've, I've got a Hindu Kush. I've got a peach quake, a couple of crosses of the peach quake. And I've got a, oh, a thing called guava that I got from a friend in Hawaii. He's a good grower in Hawaii. And, uh, I think I, got, I have one thing that's a star pupil. I've got, uh, Jesus, my brain's gone blank. I, but uh, those are the ones that I can remember. I've got, well, if they all live right now, I think I've got maybe 15 plants or so. We'll see. And then I threw out a bunch of uh, various autoflowers just to see what happens. I kind of scattered them hither and thither in a pot that was vacant hither, here and there. Let's just see what happens. So I've got a half a dozen or so of those sprouting up and, you know, we'll see how they go. Cause I, I have such inconsistent luck with them. It's just like, okay, whatever. They were all gifts to me. Let's see what happens. Let's go wild and crazy. <laughs> I'm kind right. of going food force crazy. I'm throwing, you know, food just everywhere. There would be lettuce sprouting everywhere and carrots and beets and God knows what, God knows where. 
<laughs> be tripping over food here pretty quick and uh varieties of god knows what <laughs> it'll be fun if you it gets go, too are, thick we get the machete out right <laughs> <laughs> what uh what are some of the other crops that you like to grow do you go any like pumpkin competition pumpkins or anything fun or what uh, or you got yeah. specialty tomatoes or anything that you grow or what, what do you what else do you grow in your garden right now you know i was gifted a huge box of seeds by a, such a nice person from somebody on that met me found me on the discord channel and just thought i you know he must have had somebody give him a zillion seeds because he was trying to give them away to as many people as he could but so anybody who would have them he gave a lot and it was just a big ass box so i have more varieties than i even know and so what i did to make it even more fun and exciting was i just randomly like without even looking or marking i just took handfuls of different pumpkins and different beans and different corns you know some of them are colored some of them are yellow and so like there's all kinds and they're just going to be here and there and i'll just find out when they're done what they are it's kind of like you know when you're pregnant you don't know if you're having a boy or a girl if you don't know, it's always a surprise when I come out. So I'm going to have the, the most kind of adventurous, fun garden that I've had for a long time. I don't know why I got this urge to do this, but yeah, it's being completely random this year. Like, surprise me, right? <laughs> At least I know it's going to be a whole lot of squashes and beans and then a various lettuces and various, uh, oh gosh, like I say, uh, cabbages uh carrots uh oh i do love the pumpkins man i tried to grow big pumpkins for if you ever do grow big pumpkins you, could, you gotta remember you can only grow one pumpkin per plant you gotta get rid of every other flower that tries to grow on that plant you've got to pamper the crap out of that pumpkin and you got to sit it on a little pedestal and a carpet and you got to just inject it with milk and protein and like people my god how they baby those pumpkins but jesus they'll get over a thousand pounds on these pumpkins the biggest pumpkin i ever grew was nothing like that so believe me don't don't ask me for real advice but this is these are the stories i've been told from pumpkin growing people <laughs> i like to look at the contest sometimes pretty freaking impressive oh yeah i'm a huge fan yeah it's the biology man use your biology the other thing they'll do with the competition pumpkins is they'll bury all the vines and they'll start to root off the vines as well, which is the leaves well, sticking up. Yep. That would that would make sense. Yep, yep. <laughs> cats insisting on being on the show too again. <laughs> oh god, I know I got four cats. They love it when you're busy. <laughs> oh yeah. We have four dogs and two cats, so someone's always cranky. So good. <laughs> um uh, you i see you also do a lot of work with sprouts and things like that um are you doing that for the um oh, for compost or are you doing that for food uh microgreens that's the thing that we've got into for just if for eating for ourselves you know it would be nice it's a thing that if you were in a city or urban environment with a market for it you could actually make some good money selling them but you know where I live, it's, there's population is so tiny here. I could never possibly come up with enough clients to buy them. But I knew that it's an easy way that we could get good nutrient dense food for ourselves. 
and be fun to do. So I was really enjoying doing that. And my little space that I have to grow with indoor lights isn't really huge. And so then when my little can of babies came along, they kind of needed a different light schedule. And I, I, I had to kick out the microgreens while the girls were in there, but the girls are now about to go out into the big wide world permanently. So it's going to be back to the microgreens again. But I'm really having fun with that because it's such a fast turnover crop. It's usually less than two weeks for for the average thing you grow. Some of them are being a week and, you know, some of them will be longer. So there's, I think, one thing, some kind of red amaranth or something that takes like two months or whatever till it's ready, which is the longest one. But most of them are less than two weeks and it's just amazing. And you get so much more nutrient out of it than you do for the same amount of an adult plant of the same species. And they're too delicious. And I, I'm hooked on them. I like to just, you know, get a tortilla and throw a handful of sprouts in the middle of it and whatever else. And it's just like, oh God, it's so good. <laughs> Every meal of the day, I don't get sick of it. But yeah, they're coming talking... back. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, they're coming back online just pretty quick. Um, I saw you also touched on lace bugs. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Have you dealt with those? Oh, oh you mean the green lacewing larvae? No, no, lace bugs, the ones that eat your plants. Uh, well, I know they're a problem. Oh, oh, well, you know, I like to make posts just to tell people about stuff. Thankfully, I haven't okay. seen them in my gardens, but aren't they beautiful? Oh, they're beautiful, uh, but uh, yeah, they're uh, a, a pain pest. in the butt <laughs> But you get yeah, so the beautiful pets. They're uh, <laughs> like a grasshopper. They're beautiful, right. damn it! <laughs> oh God, they upset me. <laughs> They leave a little dark stain when they're when they're uh, wow. they leave their honeydew behind. It's like a a dark colored resin spot on the leaf. They're, it's pretty easy to t to ID them, even if you don't a see them. The, yeah, honeydew or something, but yeah, but you know, they're so tiny. You always see those close up pictures, and they're beautiful, but they're actually pretty tiny, aren't they? Oh yeah, but not not cool. invisible to the naked eye, though. Thankfully. Yeah, I've seen them here in Oklahoma on, on cannabis. Yeah, there's some real weird bugs out there. A lot of them I'm glad I haven't had to deal with personally. But it, the thing when I discovered when I was in horticultural college and I was trying to, you know, take classes on insects and things and you're, you're trying to figure out how am I ever going to remember all this stuff? And the teacher said, well, you know what, really? There are not that many pests uh, insects out there. So it's not that hard to remember all the bad guys, quote unquote, bad guys. Um, there's a, most of the insects are just benign or beneficial or just, you know, disinterested in you. They've got something else going on. And there's really not that many bad. So that's all you really have to remember is a few bad guys and just not even worry about what the rest of them are. But geez, people keep coming up to me with things I have never seen before. It's disturbing. How can I be this old and still have not seen this before? I got Dang. one for you. <laughs> okay. Hold on. Oh, wait. I know where I have easier pictures to find. To pull up. Uh, there's a... This is a cucumber cucumber beetle vectored problem. 
virus or so, bacteria? It's either a bacteria blight or a viral. And this thing kills plants really fast. Okay. That's a weird uh, one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a viral. And they're often vectored by those sucking insects. Now, anything that pierces the plants is probably spreading viruses around. There's the These thing guys. called... Uh, whoops, go ahead. There we go. These are the culprits. Now, I don't have a, like a DNA confirmation, but I can tell you all of the plants that had that virus also had damage from them or them actively yeah. feeding. So yeah. one would think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, they pick it up from one when they bite it and take it to another. And they yep. that one. And they're well known for vectoring a wide range of diseases. So, you know. And that's the, uh, like you say, the cucumber beetle that, and it has the spot sometimes and it has a stripe sometimes it comes yep. both ways and both ways it's cucumber beetle and um that's when i like i said i'll bring out the spinosad if i think it, it's what i need or like you said bavaria could also be a good option for that there's um what there's another one uh, uh bactillus to hold on jubil jubilus it's one i i don't use very often but um it's specific for scarab beetles. Hold on. I'll think of it in a second. Let me pull up my list there. Uh, I'll find it. Give me a second, guys. Uh, um, have you found, had any other luck with, um, or what do you do for caterpillars? Oh, here it is. Uh, Bactillus thuringiensis galleria. That's what it is. Uh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, what do you do for caterpillar control? Yeah, I had been a BT person for years, but it seemed like it wasn't working for me anymore. And I'm kind of wondering if they haven't become immune to it in my area from overuse because they've been using it since way back before the 80s, I think. Really, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm not having that good of luck with it. So one day I was spraying some aphids and some willow trees that I had at work. And I noticed a whole bunch of caterpillars just falling out of the tree. And I went, whoa, they're hating the spray that I'm spraying on them. It was Dr. Symes at the time. So it, mm -hmm. at that time I said, oh, well, that'll kill these caterpillars if it can contact them. Now, what I've told people is, yeah, it can kill caterpillars. If caterpillars that can contact, but if they've got it, ones that are boring into their buds or boring yeah. into their stems, it cannot contact them. So it cannot save you from those. But that's that's a heartbreak because botrytis comes normally from the caterpillars that are going right into your buds from the day they're born, just eating out the yeah. inside. Oh yeah, I got a bunch of pictures of them with the caterpillar, like, and all the stuff eating out around them, and then all the botrytis oh, at the a bottom. Heartbreak. Yeah. yeah, nasty little darling. I'll usually tell people if you really have a you know an issue that's ongoing and you know it, make the investment for a mosquito net to go around your plant. It's so worth it for because uh that's, you know, at the end of your growth, how many people have told me every single bud turned out to have a caterpillar just the same. Uh, they're trying to wash it out and everything. They said it still smells like caterpillar shit. Every bud smells like caterpillar shit. And it's just, 
God, that's heartbreaking story. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. uh, make that investment. Get some mosquito netting. It's so worth it. You know, I never thought about that, getting one of those mosquito nets you'd put over a bed. And, yeah, do it for yeah. the plant. And maybe some electric, uh, I've got a solar-powered electric zapper out here. It's just do what you can do, <laughs> whatever you can do. But those, you know, because those caterpillars, they come in so randomly. It's not like you can stand there with a spray gun and spray them or a BP gun and shoot them. Or, you know, what are you going to do? Hope that the bird comes by just at the moment, you know, when it's caterpillar. It just, you don't know. Yeah. Like in my yard, I have all these cats, so they keep the birds away. And this is like a problem <laughs> because the birds <laughs> wouldn't be getting all the beetles. And now I got the beetles. So, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Problem. We've had a they're, we, they're we test gophers. we test ran on uh, a Jap the IPMO last year on Japanese beetles and they were attacking my friend's roses so we took a bunch of the beetles off the roses fermented them up with some rice and in an IMO box you know cooked them up and then threw them in the IMO box and collected the uh, uh, not fermented I'm sorry uh, uh, used them to inoculate uh, the local uh, with the local fungi and then put that into a foliar spray and, and used them on those same roses and it works really well. So perfect. 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 Have you ever heard yeah. of a guy called Jerry Baker? <laughs> no. This is an old guy for, he was famous gardener from back in probably the 1960s and seventies. And he used to, he wrote 10,000 million gardening books and it was all like making your own concoctions of this and that and the other. And he was yeah. always a proponent of this kind of thing. You were, yeah. And what you're doing is uh, a lot of old timers recommend it and swear by it, especially with fungal. Like a guy was saying he had a Christmas tree forest and everything was dying of a blight in the Christmas tree forest. And so he, he said, well, what you have to do is to take every mushroom you can find in the forest and put it in your blender and then put it in your sprayer and spray it out over all those trees. And he did that in those places where he sprayed it, everything was cured and beautiful and green and, and everything around it was just dead, wretched blight. And it was like, wow, what a revelation. And the same thing with the bugs, all those sprays are like, take the old dead bugs, put them in the blender <laughs> and yeah, add the water and spray it out. And yeah, you spread that diseases that whatever they had around and uh, keep the death flowing. Well, you know, we don't want to annihilate these species from the face of the earth and hopefully we won't, but we want to keep them at a level that's reasonable because we have yeah. to live here too. <laughs> we all have to live together. <laughs> My uh, I, I my grandpa, you remind me in the beginning. You were talking about um, different stuff that, as far as uh, you know, kind of pre-probe or um, a depression era and end of World War II era farming. Um, my grandparents, that's how I was raised. So, like, I remember picking the, the tomato leaves and steeping those for forty-eight hours in water, and then we'd strain it and spray that on to kill the Japanese beetles, and we'd trim up the the willows for cloning gel and. Uh, a whole bunch of other stuff that we used to do like that as far as making our own uh, inputs. And it kind of really reminded me a lot of getting, getting into natural farming and all the rest of it on, on how, you know, we're really just kind of doing the stuff we used to do before we bought everything. Exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. Going back to the real farming. <laughs> well, what you really want to do is just recycle your nutrients and keep things healthier. So when you go out to the forest, nobody's spraying 
uh, fertilizers. Nobody's spraying pesticides. Yeah, sure, there's some damage here and there, but everything's still growing and thriving for the most part. Now, right now, what we're having going on in the in the forest is a whole lot of, uh, you know, our human intervention has caused problems. You know what? We suppress fire so we get excessive underbrush growth and. You know, we don't know how to manage things properly. So things get out of hand in that regard. But um, the forest doesn't need us to feed it. You know, and it can live with a certain amount of pest damage. It has enough predators to take care of it. I remember once when I was uh, living in a, a place down in the Monterey Bay area, and we had live oaks there. And so all year round, the leaves have are green. And... Um, one day we woke up and there were caterpillars eating every leaf off of every tree and they were eating them so fast. I was freaking out. It's, oh my God, they're completely denuding these trees. What on earth will we do? The trees, what will the trees do? But lo and behold, yeah, they, they ate every leaf off the tree. And in a week or so, the leaves all come back. <laughs> the leaves come back so fast. They come back fresh and green and new. I was like, okay, I see what happens here. I don't need to panic. It's all taken care of itself. This is the way it's supposed to be. You know, I can get over it. But we have drought and we have a, a boring beetle here. And the combination is really bad. And we have uh, the woodpeckers help because they will help make the holes in the trees. So we're losing lots of trees to that. So it's kind of sad when you're going around the forest right now because you'll see a lot of standing dead trees, just too many. It's a little bit heartbreaking. But, you know, they aren't all dead. We still have still live trees. Thank goodness. I was always amazed. So I, I lived out in Boulevard for a bit out by El Centro um, in, the, in the top of the mountains there, kind of near Tecate Divide. And uh, it always amazed me the, the oak trees, the desert oaks. And you can be like in a deep desert and be in an oak tree forest. And you're mm -hmm. like, this is crazy. And you even get mushrooms sometimes yeah. in the room. And you're just like, this is... Yeah. This is, feels very out of place. I always thought that was so cool. <laughs> a green leaf. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love them. <laughs> Any other specific uh, pests that, that you see a lot of in Southern California? I'm sorry, a lot of what? A lot of pests that you see in your area in SoCal? Oh, oh no, I'm actually in Northern California. I'm, I'm sorry, North Cal? in Northern California. Um, up here... We're, we're are in the mountains where I live, the most common thing that we're going to encounter is, like you say, the thrips and the two-spot mites. It's our biggest, you know, you can count on it, pressed, pressed problem. And aphids, yeah, but the thrips and the mites, they ding-dang thing. And if you're trying to grow any veggies at all, now you can probably assume that little beetle here. <laughs> cucumber beetles coming to get you too i keep seeing it everywhere but um i'm also noticing that this is an area that uh, really likes to use a lot of predator insects and a lot have been released in this area over the past decade or so and so that we actually have some halfway decent populations of predators too every once in a while you'll just see a praying mantid that i didn't put out or you know, the ladybugs will just appear or the, you know, what have you, but it, it's kind of nice. There is some diversity there. We do have a lot of diversity of species here in as far as our uh, flora and fauna go. So it's, it's good in that regard because that attracts various different insects. So 
that helps to get a better balance in your natural environment. Make things a little less stressful. Knock on wood. It's also been nice. You guys have had a little bit more rain later into the season than normal. So it's helping a lot with the fires, at least so far, which is. Yeah, it's not as dry. Of course, that means the grass is going to be that much thicker and taller for later. But like, whatever, at least, you know, we had something green now. It helps the water table that, you know, another inch, every inch helps. I'll take it. (laughs) I was glad to see it. Yeah. Well, um, is there anything else you want to touch on? If not, I think we'll start to wrap up here. Mm, no, I'm good. Uh, if anybody has any questions for me at any time, uh, I can I'm be real confusing. I can say left and I mean right and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, so if I sounded senile and completely nuts, uh, give me a, a DM, a direct message at Instagram on the MBS. That's for Mary Beth Sanchez. IPM, that's for Integrated Pest Management, so MBS IPM, and that's probably the easiest way to get hold of me, if you so desire, and it was fantastic talking with both of you tonight. Thank you so much for inviting me again. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, Marty had to take off. He had uh, children to wrangle, but uh, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Uh, it's been wonderful chatting with you, and I always enjoy listening to you on uh, on Jordan River show over at Grillcast. If you guys aren't, yeah, yeah. aren't familiar, go check out Jordan as well. Uh, let me make sure I throw that up here as well. Uh, shout out to Jordan. Hang out with him on a regular basis now that he lives oh, out here. Oh, yeah. I'd follow so. you both on Instagram. <laughs> oh, yeah. Great there dude. Look at that cute face. Oh, there's <laughs> Another great podcaster, and he's got all kinds of classes he's te- teaching now and all kinds of other cool stuff. So definitely check him out. Uh, if you're looking for uh, more podcast info after our show. Um, for sure. Well, thank you a lot for coming on, and uh, I really appreciate Honored. it. Honored. Honored <laughs> to be here. Thank you so much, Stephen. And I'll t- hopefully talk to you again sometime soon. Hopefully see you all in Arizona. Uh, Arizona. Oklahoma, we're going to party. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll definitely get together. If you come out here, we'll, we'll make yes, sure that yes, we do sir. that. Yes, we will. Okay, you guys have a good one. Take care. Good night. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great evening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was really wonderful. Uh, always nice to have a, a really awesome, knowledgeable women on the show. We've been doing our try, a little, trying a little harder to kind of make sure that we get more, more uh, women representing on the growth side this year. We've had a, a ton of uh, a, a great women on the show, and we're going to have more next week. We actually have uh, uh, Gracie from a third coast, uh, uh, herbal collective. So she's going to be coming on talking about KNF and herbs and, um, making salves and all kinds of other wonderful stuff with, with cannabis. Um, so really looking forward to that. She's an awesome person. In fact, I actually have some salve somewhere around here from her, uh, that I got when I was out in Michigan. So, and I definitely see her around here occasionally in Oklahoma and all over the different places. It seems like, um, so great to, great to have her on the show. And then the week after that is our 300th episode. So, um, we have a bunch of cool, uh, guests will be joining us as always for, our, uh, our hundreds episodes. We, uh, uh, call in a bunch of our favorite guests. So we'll have a, a bunch of cool people on the show. I already heard from, uh, I was actually spending about two hours with one of them before the, before the show on the phone, I actually had to cut it off, uh, to come on the show We're talking about maybe doing a, a cool new project together. And, uh, a place other than the U.S., so uh, more info on that depending on how that goes. But the cool thing is coming. Cool thing is coming. We got some some cool stuff going on 
um, uh, down the pipeline later on. So uh, uh, neat stuff going on. And then also um, looking forward to trying to hopefully get uh, more of the edibles out back out into the Oklahoma market after the, uh, the issue we had at the, at the other spot. So uh, hopefully getting those back into full production in, um, uh, in Oklahoma uh, and OKC. So uh, that's coming down the pipeline as well. We have new classes coming out. I'll have the aquaponic mineral and microbe class out next. Uh, and then uh, I have a whole bunch of classes that I, I've put together and never taught. So I think we're just going to keep adding um, more of the online classes. We have a ton of cool content that we've just never released um, uh, that we filmed, or I, I have really cool content from uh, different places. that doesn't quite fit the normal format for the show and things like that, or it's like hyper-specialized into a particular topic. So I think we're going to uh, put some of that together and, and kind of make some cool new stuff with that. Um, so that's been fun. And then, uh, uh, what else do we have going on right now? We have the upcoming conference in the end of July, um, organiccultivators.net. Be sure to check that out. Um, we also have the Myceliate the Festival. Uh, let's see here. There we go. Myceliate the Festival. Be sure to check that out. Uh, put on my Cass Posey. She was on the show. You can check her out a couple of weeks ago. Um, and um, all about mushrooms and cannabis and uh, herbal medicine and, 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 uh, kind of just regenerative homesteading type stuff. A lot of where all the workshops are kind of like how to do something. It's not so much like, here's this idea and they're all like practical application, which is super cool. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm going to teach people how to build uh, kind of a small home aquaponic system and some other cool stuff. So, uh, kind of more of a how to, and, and how to use your hands kind of conference. I'm really excited about that with a lot of amazing people, um, so be sure to check that out at um, Myceliate, the festival. And that's about an hour south of, of Seattle. So if you're up in Washington or Oregon, you know, please come out and, and hang out. Love to see you guys there. I'll be there all weekend. Uh, so looking forward to that. And I might even stay a little longer. I got uh, some other stuff I got to do. I might stay an extra couple of days. Um, and then we also have the aquaponic cannabis class. You can check that out at apmjclass.com. Marty and I put a ton of time into that. I actually have a ton of new content, um, filmed with Marty, uh, that I just have to sit down and finish editing. Um, I've been trying to chunk that out in spurts, so that'll be going out the door here soon. So if you're already in that class, we have a bunch of new slides recorded for it. Um, if not, you know, uh, join up now, uh, we constantly add new content to this class. We're always learning new things and, and, just getting better footage of certain things and getting in depth into certain topics and things like that. And people ask us questions and the students ask us questions in the class and we create new content around their questions and we'll try and, you know, make sure everyone gets the same answer. And then we also have the all new pest class at thepestclass.com, uh, the pest P E S T class.com. Um, so, um, yeah, we have a whole, uh, again, equally in depth one. This is a full day worth of content. Um, again, I'll be adding new, new stuff as we film more stuff, but we have a ton of reference videos. All the, the different insect videos you saw on this episode today are part of that class. Uh, or, uh, so, you know, if you're looking for reference material solutions, all the different various biocontrols, um, application rates, as well as release rates for your insects, um, you know, for the various stuff, uh, and information on the different strains of the different biocontrols and other things. It really is a great, uh, great option. It's designed for aquaponics. All the stuff is is fish safe, but it also works equally well for living soil, uh, as using the uh, the higher standard is, uh, uh, you know, nothing wrong with using a higher than normal standard uh, for your soil as well. So everything is, is equally applicable to both. 
So we have a, a lace wing larva attacking some aphids there, spider mite, uh, and all kinds of fun stuff. So a uh, great time for everybody if you're looking for education. And uh, yeah, thanks for watching. Again, you can check out her um, podcast or uh, not podcast, her Instagram. I'm sorry, I'm tired. It's been a long day. It's been really hot here. Uh, MB, MBSIPM uh, on Instagram for Mary Beth Sanchez. And you can find us at Bone Products on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Amazon, all the things. Uh, and we will catch you guys again next week. Again, we're not going to have a show on Tuesday. Um, my schedule is just a little bit more full at the moment. Um, but we will be back again on Thursday. And then the following Thursday will be our 300th episode, which you definitely won't want to miss. Um, always a good time. Um, yeah, it's going to be fun. So, alrighty, guys. Thanks for watching. We'll catch you guys again next time.